I'm so thankful there's a breeze, but uh, I could tell it was really tough for our worship team to to make sure their music wasn't blown away, but uh, they managed pretty well. So thank you for that last song, especially. I'm like, I got caught up in it and I almost, almost forgot I had to come up here and, and talk. But um, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 19. And rather than read it all at the start, I'm going to wait and do it within the, the sermon time because it really breaks up into three sections and each of them speaks about a different way that God speaks to us. And so it might be easier just to go through that when we, we get to that point. But um, it starts off with, as, as Sandy said, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and again, what a perfect day to to have this be our, our word for this morning. And it called to mind for me, 2017. Did anyone here get to see the solar eclipse? Yeah? I assume it didn't come to upstate New York. You probably had to travel to the south. I know it didn't get to Ohio where I was. Um, so I took a special trip with Ben. Uh, my daughters had marching band practice, so they couldn't go. So Ben and I uh, drove eight hours down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And one of my favorite places is the, the Smoky Mountains. And so we decided we were, I wanted to see it. I'd never seen a solar eclipse before and so excited. And we, we planned it out. And I knew the spot I wanted to watch it from was Cades Cove. If you've ever been down there, it's just a beautiful um, area. I mean, all, all the Smokies is beautiful. But uh, so I... We got up early that morning because we knew there'd be a lot of crowds, got donuts, and we started driving out as an hour of winding roads back. And then about three miles from where I wanted to go, traffic, cars, not moving at all. And I remember sitting there thinking, uh-oh, is it already full? You know, like five hours before it's even supposed to start. What's going on? Ben got sick. It, it was all, you know, that donut didn't, didn't last very long. It was all glorious. Um, and then just as I was fearful that we wouldn't get to see it, traffic started moving. What had happened is they had actually closed off the one section. And so everyone was waiting to get in. So at 10 AM they opened up and we, we got in, we got a great parking spot and, and uh, at a picnic area where it's right near a Creek. And we just spent the day, sitting by a, a creek and sort of, you know, put on our glasses and look at the sun. Is it happening yet? And, and just kind of watch it all go by. And the overwhelming thought I had is, God, you are amazing. This, and as I watched the eclipse and that, that minute and a half when you saw the corona and I'm like, oh, it was so cool. I'm more convinced than ever that God has designed the world we live in and, and even the whole universe that we might come to know him. He made it so that we could see him. The, the world we live in points to him. And actually, an eclipse is an amazing event in and of itself. The fact that, I mean, our sun is, is incredibly larger than the moon and yet the distance is such 
that the disk of the moon exactly covers the sun. What a, what a crazy coincidence. And because of that, it has actually helped science along because during those eclipses, the, sci the scientists get out there and they get their measuring instruments because they can learn things about the solar dynamics during that time uh, that they would never learn otherwise. In fact, it was an eclipse that helped them prove uh, the, uh, the general theory of relativity by Einstein. And it just so happens that the sun is the exact right size and distance to, to allow that. I guess Psalm 19 would say it's not so much a coincidence. The God that created the world designed it that we might see him and know him. And so that's the main one of the first points out of Psalm 19. And there's a follow-up point. God is not hiding from humanity, but speaks to us in various ways, and he desires to speak into our lives for good. Word of God, speak. He desires to speak into your individual life. So in Psalm 19, we see three ways God is speaking to people. And, and I'm going to tell you up front, I, I kind of have a skeptical nature to me. And for all three of these areas, I had to be convinced I initially didn't believe that God spoke in these ways. I had to be won over and convinced. And maybe you've been in that same spot. So first, um, beginning 19 verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." We know this tells us this psalm was written by David, and you can just see David looking up into the sky and said, God, you are amazing. Uh, he says, it's like creation has a voice, a voice that can speak into any language. It can speak to every people, all the world around, and it can declare God is powerful, God is glorious, God really is there. There's no way this came about without this intelligence behind it. Um, you'll note that it speaks what I call observational truth. So for those who maybe had a science class, you know that the sun does not actually, you know, move as it goes across the sky, that it's actually the earth rotating. But it's speaking as the truth as, as it's being observed from upon the earth. So it's, it's observational truth. And the other thought that sometimes gets confusing is we use the word heaven comes up in different contexts. Sometimes heaven is the dwelling place of God that is beyond our sight. But have the heavens refer to what you see when you look up. It's what's beyond the sky. So in the ancient thinking, they, they assumed God lived up way beyond where you could see them. That's somewhere up there. We, we know that heaven now is, in, in a sense, another dimension. It's not visible in our universe, that God lives outside of our universe. But, but in their thinking is God's up there. So the heavens 
refer to what we see when we look up there, the stars, the moon, all, all the glory up there, and that God is somehow above that ruling over it. But these verses make a claim that the world we live in declares that there is a creator that stands outside the creation, that exists and who put it all together and rules over it by his wisdom and power. And, and we don't quite um, understand that that was not the way the, the other religions viewed it. They, they, when they told the story of their gods, their gods were always a part of the world. And maybe they did battle or did some, something that brought order within the world, but they were as much a part of the universe as the forces and everything else. The scriptures consistently declare, no, there's a God that preceded the universe. Um, and I love the description. It's kind of a poetic description of the sun. It says the sun comes forth, going from one end of the, the, the circuit to the other, and it's like a champion rejoicing to run its course, or a bridegroom strutting about as he comes out to his wedding, you know. And you can imagine, especially in the Middle East, the Middle Eastern sun, how powerful that was and, and how that looked like, you know, someone strutting around. It's a poetic description. But it also shows the sun is not a god, as it was in the other Near Eastern religions. The sun is actually just a servant of the one true God who made it all. The created world speaks to us and says there is an intelligent design, designer behind our universe, a being who put it all together, that life, the universe, and everything is not just a happy accident. Um, that's what Paul really says in Romans 1. Romans 1.19, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning people, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they were without excuse. In other words, it's saying, if you look at what God has made, you should be able to tell that there's a God behind it a God who is eternal power and divine nature. So can you really look at our universe, our creation, and say, you know, the universe and our world, and say it all came about on its own? Well, yes. In fact, there's many voices in our world that say exactly that, that, that this world did just come about on its own, that life is a happy accident of fortunate coincidences, um, there's a, I, I didn't read the book, but I listened to a podcast of the author arguing with someone called, and there's a book called a universe from nothing by Lawrence Krauss. And he makes the argument that the quantum field preceded the big bang and, and the quantum field had the potential. Um, and I, I know there's some nuclear scientists, maybe they can correct my language in the, you know, in the, the crowd, but the quantum field proceeded and it had the capability of the, the whole universe just springing into existence out of nothing. So that was Krauss's theory. Um, so he says the universe just came about on its own with no, it says, um, did not require any external control or direction. In other words, it does not require a God to do it. It just happened on its own. 
But the question that sticks out to me is, so who brought about this quantum field that had the capability of a universe springing to existence within it? And so I think there might be some flaw in his, uh, in, in his thinking. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a compelling story that non-believers can tell about how the universe and how the life came to be. And at one point, I bought into it. I had read those stories, and it made sense. The, the origin of the universe, um, that our planet just happened to be the right distance from the, the sun so that water could exist, and, and the first cell you know, just sort of came together at a warm pond and some electricity, you know, gave it some energy and, and it just happened to coincidentally fit together and then start replicating. And then once you got that, you got natural selection takes over and, and soon we had a planet teeming with life. And, and then ultimately out of that, you know, out of the mammals, once they came around, there's some mammals that walked upright and they gained intelligence and the ability to, to use reason and, and think. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot of coincidences that can happen, but, you know, life exists, so they just must have happened. And I, there's more details to that story, of course, but I remember buying into that. And so when I first was hearing the message about God, really the message about Jesus, who I was told he was the son of God, I had trouble even hearing that. Because, well, we know we don't need God. The universe came about on its own. And, and I had arguments that I had realized with So I was skeptical that God really spoke through creation. Um, but my youth leader was wise. And he says, you know, God could have created the universe in a lot of different ways. Why don't you set that aside for now? And, and take a closer look at, at Jesus and consider whether what he said is true and whether he really was the son of God on earth and, and start there. And then you could figure out later about this whole creation evolution thing. And that was very wise because I did start to listen more clearly. In fact, it was at a camp in New York, Lake, Lake champion in Southern New York. And, and as I listened to the stories about Jesus, suddenly I wondered, maybe there is a God who put it all together. And, and I had a simple prayer. God, if you are there, can you find some way to speak to me? That's game over, dude. Once you pray that, God said, yeah, I can find a way. And I remember God revealing himself to me in a way that I knew he existed. And so after that, I wanted to know more. And so I began reading book after book. I wanted to look, what is the evidence in science, and in the Bible about how this universe came to be. And, and you want books? I got books. I got, I got one up here with me. Um, but the, the, the evidence that this universe is not an accident, that life could not just come about on its own, keeps growing and growing. And I could go into a lot of different territories. Uh, just let me give you one. Is the evidence, the origin of the first cell. The, the science cannot explain how life got started. They just can't. There's a guy on YouTube. You can uh, just Google his name, uh, James Tours, Origin of Life. He's a, he's a molecular biologist. 
he studies the stuff, and he says, there is no way that the first cell just came about by random accident. And that's his field. That's what he studies. And he, he's a very convincing speaker. Um, but that kind of stuff, there, there had to be a power in the universe behind it all. So I have three things I want to say. Um, for many of you, well, first of all, if, if this is something you're wondering about, I, there's a very easy book to start with. It's called The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. Um, when, my, when the rest of my books arrive, I can loan, a, loan you a copy. Didn't have that one. Um, but it's really easy. And then I have other books you can, if you want to dig deeper. Um, but for some of you, it's like, why would I even bother with that? You know, I know God created the world. I don't want to dig into all that science stuff. And if that's you, that is absolutely fine. Like, praise God, he made the world. I don't need to, I don't need to know the details. Um, for others of you who want to understand, know this. The evidence of God's design keeps growing and growing. The more you look, Christians do not need to be afraid of science and looking into it. Now, sometimes individual scientists will make statements that we, we might need to be skeptical of. They'll overplay the evidence, but we do not need to fear where the evidence leads. The other thing I want you to know is we have another source. God did not leave us just to the heavens and the earth to know that he existed. God has spoken through his word. God has chosen to reveal himself through the scriptures. And so we go to our part two, verses seven to 11. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The second area I had to be convinced of is that the Bible is God's intentional communication to people. That, that the word of God is God's intentional communication to, to humanity so that people might come to know him. He wanted to, he chose to speak to us. And, and how he did it is fascinating. He started with one man, Abraham. He knew that humanity had lost touch with him, could not hear him, could not see him in creation any longer. So he found one man of faith, and he began with him. He began revealing himself to Abraham and his descendants. And then his descendants grew into the people of Israel. And he spoke to them in their, in their lives and in their history. And over time, we got an entire book. The Old and New Testaments came as revealed to the, to the, people, of, um, the people of Israel. Hebrews 1 speaks about that. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has chosen to reveal himself. There's a, a term called general revelation. That is the, the term that how God reveals himself in creation, the first part. And then we have what's called special revelation. And that is how God has revealed himself at first to people, but then as they wrote it down, it became he reveals himself in, his, in the scriptures, in the Bible. When you look at 7 to 11, you see various words that, that speak of scripture. You see, it talks about the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Um, it, it likes to use, you know, not just repeat the same word over and over again, but, but it's also because in the Bible, there are different genres, different ways within the scripture that God speaks. Sometimes he gives outright rules like do not murder. You know, that's a rule. Don't do that. But sometimes he teaches through, through events, things that happen. Let me give you an example. We, we have the teaching that, that um, marriage is between one man and one woman. That, that comes up in Genesis 2, 2.24 when Adam and Eve got married. And so it teaches monogamy. But maybe you've noticed the Bible has a lot of stories of people who did not remain monogamous. And in fact, some that practice polygamy. But what you'll see is every time it talks about someone who, who did practice polygamy, it did not work out very well. Uh, the classic example is Jacob. He ended up with four different wives who all strived against each other and they competed against each other to have the most kids. And then they, they ended up with 12 sons who fought like cats and dogs. And one of them, they, they tried to kill one of them and ended up selling him into slavery. Like the Bible conveyed monogamy is better by telling you the stories of what happens when you don't follow it. So that's the scriptures work that way. There's all kinds of different ways of communicating. There's poetry, like, like the Psalms. Those are poems or songs that, that speak of God. You have Proverbs. You have philosophical thoughts like Ecclesiastes and, and whole books of philosophy like Job. Um, God has chosen in various ways to reveal himself to people, not just one way. And I have become convinced. Initially, I was wondering, is this really God's word? Is this really reliable? But as I've studied it and gotten to know it and understand what it's really teaching, I've come to the conclusion that this is an amazing book. And it is worth investing your life in getting to know it and, and carefully learning it. Because it could be misunderstood. It could be um, misapplied. But when we understand it rightly, God reveals himself to us. And so we see, what does it do? It's reviving the soul. It makes wise the simple. We have rejoicing in the heart. We have enlightening in the eyes. It endures forever. Isn't it amazing how in throughout so many ages and cultures, this book has been relevant? How many other books have been relevant for thousands of years. And it says it's altogether righteous. Learning what God has to say to us 
is greater than a pile of gold. It'll do more for your life than, than all the gold you can get. And, and hearing God speak to you through it is sweeter than honey. Have you ever had that experience where you're reading it and you're, you're, your mind just opened up to something new? And you're like, oh, wow, that's incredible. Isn't that almost one of the sweetest feelings there is? What reason, what makes studying and digging into the scriptures worth it for you? You know, what has been a time where you really dug into it and it was worth it? But God does not just speak in the written word of God. And as the song we sang, word of God speak, he speaks into our heart. He speaks to us personally. And I become convinced of, and I was very skeptical of this, that God wants to speak into your life and undo the hold that sin has on your heart. So verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There it goes. God wants to speak into your life. He wants to speak into my life because he knows there's things in our heart that need to be addressed. This is probably the hardest thing that, that God had to convince me of. Um, even after I had accepted the forgiveness of Christ and begun to follow Jesus, I still kind of thought that I was basically good, right? I just needed to be forgiven for a few little things, you know, and, um, and you know, I just needed a, just a little help to, to not do bad, you know. I needed to, what, what's it, you, you don't drink, don't chew, and don't date the girls who do. Like, you know, that, that was, you know, as long as I could live up to that, I, I figured I was okay, Um the longer I have followed Christ, the more I see that in my heart, there's, it's just full of greed and envy and anger and lust and pride, stuff that I'm pretty good at hiding from other people, um, but God sees. In fact, I'm even pretty good at hiding it from myself, but God knows. And I'm grateful for scripture because it tells me it's not just me. All that stuff is in your heart as well. Romans 7 talks about, Paul, Paul writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And when I want to do good, I find evil is right there beside me. <laughs> like, I remember reading that for the first time like, yes. That's one of the verses that helped convince me that this is God's, God's scripture, God's word. Because I see that in my own heart. I thought it would be easy to follow Jesus once I knew what he wanted. I didn't realize I'd have an enemy inside me fighting me all the way. Psalm 19 asks, who can discern his own errors? Jesus gives us great illustration in, in Matthew 7, 3. He, said, he, he tells us, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to see the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes. 
but yet still not be able to see the plank or the log that is in your own eye. We have this ability to see the faults and wrongdoings of others with the utmost specificity. When someone does us wrong, we can describe to you in depth how wrong they are and why we are in the right and they are in the wrong. But we are obtuse when it comes to our own heart. We don't hear our own tone of voice. We, we catch the attitude that others give us. But we don't catch the own attitude that we give off all the time. Who can discern his own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. There are hidden faults within us. Sin has taken root in our inner being. It has entwined ourselves with our heart, and we're not capable of detecting it, let alone removing it. It is beyond our ability. We need a Savior from the outside who can come in and begin to undo the entanglement and save us from the sin that has is, is warped itself into our life. But God is so gracious. There's so much that he forgives that we don't even, we don't even know about. Like he overlooks things in our life because he knows you're not ready to deal with that part of you yet. We'll get to that later. And over and over again, the, the more I follow Jesus, the more I learn I'm a sinner in need of grace. It's the only one as a new Christian that I thought I pretty much had it down. It goes on, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me or have dominion over me. I'm, I have the NIV version memorized and we're at ESVs on our page. But sin has this tendency to take over more and more of our life. If we get away with something, we are going to keep doing that. Thank God, the first time I ever tried to cheat on a test, I got caught. Seventh grade, states and capitals test. And um, I, 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 had, I had studied. I had it down. And the, the teacher had it. Normally, we face the map. He turned all our desks around so that we weren't supposed to look at the map behind us. And I just had a few. You know, I think, I think it was the southern ones. I, what's, the, what's the capital of Alabama? I just couldn't remember. You know, so I just tried to take a little peek, thinking the teacher wasn't watching. Ha <laughs> ha, fool. So I got caught, and I got zero out of 100 on that test. That was not going to be good. I didn't, I didn't go home and tell mom and dad that. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What happens when they get my report card at, you know, at the end of this time? And I don't know if he did it because of me or for me, but our teacher had grace, and he says the whole class didn't do as well as he'd like, so he was going to retest us all. We got a second chance. And I turned that zero into at least a B or something. <laughs> and so I never had to tell mom and dad that I cheated on that test. So I think mom might be watching from home. Sorry, mom. But what I learned from that is getting caught is that I'm not good at cheating. I shouldn't do it. And so that was actually one of the God's greatest gifts to me is that uh, um, I, I'd never thought about cheating again just because I know I probably would get caught again. But that's how sin works, right? It, 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 we, if we can get away with it, it winds into our life. The, the passage goes on to say, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, the truth is, none of us can ever be sinless. 
To be sinless means we live up to the standard God had set for us, and only Jesus could ever be that live up to that standard. Um, and we will only be sinless when we see him face to face in eternity. But blamelessness is a little different. To be blameless means no one has a charge they can bring against you, that you've not done harm to someone, that they can go to the king and demand that you make recompense. Now, even that, we really can't be blameless because we hurt people all the time. But when we do fall short, we can make it right. And he's asking, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Keep me, Jesus, from hurting other people. Keep me from that sin inside of me doing damage to those around me. Jesus prayed something similar, said, told us to pray, you know, lead me not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Right? Don't, don't let us get caught up in that. And then verse 14. And can I suggest that this become a regular part of our prayer life? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable or pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, God not only speaks through what he's made, general revelation, and speaks through his word, um, special revelation. But he also speaks to us individually, personal revelation. And, and his word can come to us. And you can invite God to speak into your life, to show you where you need to change and grow, to show you the things that you cannot even see yourself, to show you where you're off base in your words and even in your thoughts to say, Lord, I want not just my actions, but my words and my thoughts to be, to be right with you, to be pleasing in your sight. We spend a lot of time praying for things or bringing to God our list of people in prayer, and that is, that is okay. We're certainly allowed to pray for things we're worried about, pray for people we care about. But we also need to, to, to make this a deeper part of our prayer life. Lord, show me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And I love how he ends, because you are my rock and my redeemer. You're my rock. You're the one I can count on that my salvation through the troubles of this life, God will not change. And we can hold on to him no matter what hurricane is blowing in our life. He is our rock. And he's also our redeemer. He is the one that came to set us free. That's what a redeemer does. He's the one that came to set us free from the hold that sin has upon our life. So brothers and sisters, what would it look like for you to make Psalm 1914 a regular part of your prayer life? Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you speak not just in the the general ways, not just through your word, but that you speak to our hearts and lives. And Lord, we just know we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to convince us that there's work yet to do in our hearts and lives. So Lord, we invite you to, to do that. And, and we come to you and we want to learn to come to you every day and, and lay our life at your feet so that what we do is pleasing to you because you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen.